0: Welcome to another episode of the Black Menaces Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Bird, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host,
1: Rachel Weaver. Happy to be here with
0: you guys. Perfect. Thanks so much, Rachel. And then we're also super excited to introduce um, our guest today. Alexis, we say hello to the audience real quick. Hi. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, we're, we're excited to interview Alexis. She has an amazing experience as an indigenous indigenous woman who also went to BYU. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about her in just a second. Uh, but until then, we already know what it is. We got the menace moment. Let me jump right into that. Let's see here. Uh, so the menace moment that we're going to do today is an indigenous woman, keeping with the theme of today's podcast. Uh, so we're going to do Gloria Bird. She was born in 1951, and she is a Native American poet, essayist, teacher and a member of the Spokane tribe in Washington state. Um her work, her main priority is to question and diminish harmful stereotypes that are placed on Native American people. And her focus is on educating her community in accurate scripts without exploiting the culture. Um, She does that through her writing. Uh, So she was born in 1951 in Yakima Valley or Yakima Valley uh, in Washington. And growing up, she kind of bounced between the Spokane and Colville reservations and attended uh, American Indian boarding schools. Um, She grew up with like sisters, mothers, grandparents. And remembers that like during that time, she learned how to peel and eat sunflower socks with salt. Um, and then while she was in high school, she attended the Institute of American Indian Arts in New Mexico, where she and then she later went on to Portland Community College and then Lewis and Clark College, where she received her bachelor's in English. And then she got her master's in literature from the University of Arizona in 1992. She started writing when she was on the reservation. Um, While she was just kind of isolated, feeling very alone. And she started like writing poetry um, as like a way to, I guess, cope. Um, And then she got her first poetry book published uh, shortly after she graduated from University of Arizona in 1993. And she actually won an award for that. Um, And then in 1997, she published her second book, The River of History. And um, her writing has appeared in lots of different like anthologies and records and things like that. Um, and yeah just like her the writing that she does kind of describes what life is like on a reservation as a native american um, but also just as a woman in general and uh, so you know a lot of it is more, like her her work is uh, made to educate and to teach people a little bit about like her experience or just the experience of, of of women and indigenous women everywhere um, and then let's see she graduated from university of arizona and worked as a creative writing teacher at her former art school in New Mexico for five years. And she was also a co-editor for the Wicazo Sa Review. I'm sure I butchered that, but I tried. I did my best. Um, and then yeah, she currently uh, is a part-time teacher at the Salish Kootenai College and is working for the Spokane tribe. So that's a little bit about Gloria Bird, who is an artist and poet and a writer. Um, but yeah, so wanted to do her. Uh, I don't know a lot about indigenous history, which I realize is a huge gap in my education. So something I've been trying to learn more about and understand better, uh, just because I think that it's you know, Native Americans were here before everybody else. And uh, yet there's some of the, the, the people that we know least about in terms of history and in terms of what we teach in school. Pretty much the only thing I learned about Native Americans was the Trail of Tears, which I'm sure is probably pretty standard. Um, but yeah, so we wanted to to highlight that because today we're interviewing an amazing indigenous woman uh, who is an artist, a mother and a teacher. Um, she goes by Alexis Dyer and, um, she is a, let me see if I can get these right. She did a little bit of coaching before (laughs) this, but her intersections are, she is shungal, which means woman. And then she is atahum payom Pecha Pechangayam, which means Western people, Pechanga Band of Luisenyo Indians. Did I get that right, Alexis? That
2: was really, really good. Awesome. Yeah, that was good.
0: Cool. Been working on my, my Western language there for like 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you will, just kind of introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do, and then we'll just kind of jump into learning more about your experience. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Me, I'm um, Chonu. Alexis no Ramona, Raphael. So basically, <laughs> translation is uh, My name is Alexis Manoa Dyer. I'm from the Payom Kowichum Nation and the Pachanga Band of Luiseno Indians. Um, yeah, I my clan is the Toshval or the little yellow flower clan. Um, and my husband is Andrew Dyer and my kids are Rafael and Ramona. And so, yeah.
0: Okay, awesome, awesome. Could you explain a little bit more about like clans and how they work? I- I've learned a little bit from interviewing uh, terrell two-spirit yes. but i need to like Love learn that. a little bit more about that
2: yeah so um <clears throat> like within each nation like navajo nation and and pechanga or Pachanga is a band or a village within the payom nation um and our um, ancestral territory. I always ask like students, like, have you been to Legoland? <laughs> That's our ancestral home. So okay, well. San Anofre, if you're familiar with what is now called Southern California, it's um, San Anofre to Idyllwild, down to San Pasqual Valley, out to <laughs> Cardiff, and then out to the Lower Channel Islands. Um, and then clan is your family so kind of like um what was said in the previous uh discussion on this is like when you say your clan you're saying your family who you're from and and usually like if i'm at home i'll like give my whole lineage like i'll say like um no two petra toshival p juan dominguez and then i'll like explain my genealogy all the way down like if I'm around other people who who know, even the individual families within a clan. So a clan is like your huge extended family, um, yeah. And like he said, like then you know who you can date and who you cannot date. And, <laughs> um, yeah, because who who your family? Is. And also, you know, like it's saying kind of like each family has its own culture basically in Mm. a mini way you know so like um for us each clan is from a different village along our river so our people traditionally move along all of that territory depending on the food depending on what native plant season it is so um but families would stay and kind of you know Um, basic areas and then travel and visit each other through these waterways basically in Southern California. So like my clan is from um, the, like, right before you get to Cahuilla, which is Palm Springs area. So.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. (laughs) Thank you for the for the education. I I enjoyed that. I'm I'm still learning a lot about like indigenous culture, so it's good to know. Oh yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say like it's it's nobody's fault that um that you don't know a lot about native people because it was on purpose. Mm. <laughs> That's
1: it's true. That is true.
2: Don't mm. hear those things in school. Um yeah. That's what I like try to tell people.
0: That makes sense. I will say yeah, it's nobody's fault, but I also think that it's like if I don't make an effort to learn now that I'm aware, then it is my fault. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think that's important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about like how you grew up, your upbringing, um, and then what what brought you to to BYU? Uh, so
2: um, I grew up here on my homeland in Southern California. Um, and that relationship with the land has always been really, really important to me. And um, yeah, I was actually born a baby cougar at BYU at wow.
1: UPRC.
2: My mom is from, um, she's English, Scots, German, and my dad is native in Basque. And um, she, was attending BYU and he was to, he was the first generation um, to attend college. And um, yeah, so I was born there. And then a year later, uh, my little sister was born and we moved back to San Diego. My parents both grew up in Southern California. My mom grew up in LA, and then my dad grew up around our homelands. Um, so yeah. Um, loved it here, went to high school out in San Pasqual Valley and, um, Escondido. We lived, so the reservation is, um, all, all the, the Luceño or the Payom Guichum reservations are an hour inland from the ocean, which, mm-hmm. um, happened because they thought that that land was, um, less desirable or basically a wasteland. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were wrong. (laughs) Luckily we know how to live on our land. Mm -hmm. Um, so my grandparents and my cousins all lived on the res and then, um, my dad worked downtown San Diego. And so it's about an hour and a half, like an hour drive with no traffic to San Diego. So we lived, um, in the middle in Escondido and, um, yeah. I grew up here, loving it, Southern California girl all the way. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So,
0: oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: Oh, yeah. And then, um, but BYU, back to BYU, um, it was like always like, you could apply somewhere else, but, you know, like my parents were, you know, always telling the stories of, their love story and like Mm -hmm. how they went to BYU and BYU is, it was just kind of like my only option, especially as the oldest child, like I Mm. I had extreme pressure to like set an example for my younger siblings. And um, yeah, so I think, you know, I think when I grew up in a pretty straight-laced, LDS household
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um it was kind of like uh, the pressure to go to BYU was really really big and so like I I didn't have like the best grades I I had but like the best because BYU is like outrageous um <laughs> yeah <laughs> I guess any college these days but mm-hmm. um like I did like a crap <laughs> sorry my mouth I'm like
0: you can say whatever. This is. You can say. It. I'm laughing because
2: either. this is me. I'm I went fishing yesterday too, so I'm like hot off that. That's why I'm like sunburned.
0: You're good. Yeah. You're good.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. So I did a shit ton of extracurriculars to like get myself into BYU, and I was like out like early morning seminary every day, dark to dark, doing those extracurriculars so I could like get to. BYU, because I was like a B student in AP classes. Right. So, mm, yeah. That's,
1: that's, that's Which isn't awesome. even bad. Isn't even right. bad. Right. Right.
2: right. Yeah. So that perfection expectation was really, really high, like for me growing up. Okay. <clears throat> so, but I think like my authentic self was like, I'm going to apply somewhere else. So I applied to Northwestern. <laughs>
1: Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's, in, that's in Chicago. That's where I'm from. So I'm like, I know.
2: that's really yeah. far
1: from California.
2: Yeah. But I think then somebody was like, it's so cold there. You can't handle it. And I was like, really? Oh my gosh. So then, <laughs> and then like I was auditioning for music. So I'm a musician. I majored in jazz studies at BYU. Oh. That's the whole
1: thing.
2: Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I bombed my Northwestern audition, so,
1: mm.
2: yeah. And somehow I got into BYU, and kind of the minute I set foot in Utah, I knew, like, this isn't for me, but I I was at a point in my life where I couldn't even hear my authentic self. Mm. And so, you know, I would, like, rationalize that away, like, oh, it's just this. Like, you just need to get used to it. You just need to buy a better jacket. Mm. <laughs> like, you okay, just okay. to um, you know, like the culture is this way, but you need to deal with it. You know, like everything, mm-hmm. I would like, take it back on myself, like it's my fault. And right. I didn't realize mm-hmm. like how much I was self gaslighting because that wasn't a term in 2004. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, it wasn't a term that I was aware of. Social media wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And in- right, right. right. Anyway.
0: So I wanted to ask before we jump like too far into BYU. I wanted to ask, what was it like, um, like trying to mesh the culture of being a member of the LDS Church and then also being indigenous? Yeah. Like, how was that growing up? Did you feel like you had to sacrifice one for the other? Did they mesh well? Um, did were you taught that you were a Lamanite? Like all that kind of stuff.
2: Well, we could talk about that for a really long time. Um, yes, to all of that. I grew up being taught the Book of Mormon was written for you specifically. Like I was taught mm. that I, was, when I I was taught that our our ancestors like the reason for this genocide is because of our wickedness. And I internalized those things and um, at the same time like um I was also my my dad is a beautiful person and you know, deep, deep thinker. And I think he was trying to make sense of those things the way that he knew how. And so um, we would often like him and I in our conversations like draw parallels to our creation story here in Southern California and what is taught in the temple. So like um, our traditional dress, is basically an apron. <laughs> um, so,
0: interesting, interesting.
2: Yeah, so, you know, here I am, and, and me too, you know, like trying to make sense of how this temple ceremony is actually our ceremony, and our ceremony is like basically the bastardization of the temple. So... Mm-hmm. Mm. It was very, very intertwined for me personally. Um, and again, like my relationship to the land, like instead of crediting the land for and just being present in the land, like it is what it is for itself. I was, you know, crediting not to a man in the sky who wanted me to be white. Mm. Um And so that was really, really difficult growing up, Um, like even down to patriarchal blessings, like um, patriarchs who knew, like my cousins grew up next to the Rez. So the patriarchs knew that they were native. Um, Mm -hmm. They had different tribal assignments in their patriarchal blessings. And then like, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, um, when I was like 13, there was a lot of death around me. Mm -hmm. And so I became very, very, um, I don't know, converted to the gospel at that point.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: Because I was experiencing serious pain, probably like, you know, for the first real time that I knew that I could understand. (laughs) so yeah, I I lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> You're good. You were talking about how like you experienced a lot of pain um and like were driven towards Oh yeah, the possible? patriarchal blessing. Mm-hmm. So
2: like I, yeah. I got my patriarchal blessing when I was fourteen and um it said like Ephraim and I remember being like, Oh, maybe I'm whiter than I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it really like the The idea that Lamanites are, um, you know, the ancestors of modern day indigenous people is absolutely violent, um, and <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> and people, you know, I've had a few people lately be like, "That's not what's taught. That's not how." It- but um, that is what was taught and that is still mm-hmm. being taught. And um, the literalness of those things is, plays out in, um, you know, in my body, in, mm-hmm. in my blood. Um, yeah, <laughs> and that's no, just some really, really horrible um, things.
0: Yeah, I yeah. could definitely see how that would—that is—a it, it can be a very violent teaching for for those who are not super familiar with um, like LDS culture and LDS teachings. Um, the Book of Mormon is considered to be like a history of Native Americans, or like a, a history of well, yeah, basically like the origins of Native Americans wow. in in the in America, um, and it teaches basically that like they came from Jerusalem to America. And then over time, they, like, fell away from the teachings of God and became wicked and then became dark skinned. And then, um, you know, later on ended up fighting a big civil war and destroying most of you know, themselves. And I guess they kind of scattered all over the United States. Um, if you really, like, look into it, uh, it's been, you know, proven that the DNA doesn't really match up. But that's kind of a, a discussion for another time. Uh, but it, but it's still taught that it's that it's a, an accurate history, um, and unfortunately, it's been proven that it's not an accurate history. Uh, but we won't we won't get too much into that. But that's kind of what Alexis is talking about a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, so you know, kind of going back to you know having that that teaching in your life and trying to like mesh those two things, and having your 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 father try to do the same. Um, what effect did that have on you going into Utah, and uh, you know, entering an education at BYU?
2: Um, well, uh, I was, you know, I'm a musician, so when I was about 16, I knew that BYU was where I was supposed to go, <laughs> and um, I went to Young Ambassadors Camp, and oh, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it was a time, <laughs> and that's when I realized that Young Ambassadors was not for me.
1: <laughs> Which is funny if you know anything about Young Ambassadors. I don't know how to even describe. Yeah, uh, but
0: it's a, It's like a, I'm a,
1: laughing yes, with group. you. So, yeah. <laughs> so well, why would, for
2: some people like I'm just not a musical theater. Like I grew right. up. Musical theater is cool it's not for me as right. a and as an artist. So I kind of figured that out at camp and I was having a hard time. Cause I was like, what the fuck am I going to do at BYU? But mm. what the freak am I going to do at BYU? <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of like scared cause you know, at BYU and the music program, there's only like, as far as I knew, um, like there's a huge they call it the Western academic tradition, but really what that means is a Euro academic tradition. Mm. Uh, And I was kind of like worried, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to continue my musical career at that school? And um, so at Young Ambassadors Camp, um, I think one one of the, I don't remember who it was but one of the young ambassadors themselves was like oh and if you are of these cultures you can try out for living legends and i was like what like oh my Mm. god there's like a thing for us like oh i was so excited i was like yes okay i'm gonna have like friends it's gonna be so cool and i went up to and they're like, this is the lady that runs it. And I was like, so excited. And she had been running like one of our voice classes. And after class, everybody went out of the classroom and I went up to her. And at this point I was like a total beach rat. Like, well, I still am, but like, and it was 2002. So, you know, highlights were really, really cool. (laughs) I'm laughing. (laughs) And my boyfriend was like, totally a surfer. Love (laughs) Love it. Yeah, so I had like serious highlights and um, not these natural ones, but like real kinds, peroxide probably. And (laughs) uh, I was like, hey, you know, like I'm Luceno, I'm from Southern California. I really would love to try out for Living Legends. And, And she was like, oh, well, there's auditions. And I was like, yeah, like about auditions. Like I've been auditioning for stuff since I was nine. Like, no problem. Like, okay. What do I need to do? And she was like, Well, you have to demonstrate your culture. And I was like, whoa, like, uh, hmm, okay. Listening, still curious, but like, um, I for my people, we're not powwow people. Our dances were illegal until 1978, so they were done Mm -hmm. in secret and they were carried. They never died, but they were not—they're not recorded, not videoed. They're not shared on YouTube. Like, (laughs) there was no YouTube when I was asking these questions. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I was like, how? In my brain, I was like panicking, like, how am I gonna? Like, I don't know. Like, okay, well, maybe listening still you know maybe there's something i could do and she's like and um you know you have to like dance and i was like okay i can do that and she's like well usually we take a more typical look and i was like
0: Hmm. a more typical look interesting interesting
2: like what and I was like, oh, okay. I could tell she was like done with the conversation. And like, she kind of like went on her way and I like walked out and I realized like what she was saying to me mm-hmm. was that like I was too much of something else.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
2: I didn't look like what this non-native momyash right. lady, momyash in our language means like came here on a boat. Like, that's, that's, we don't say why we say like, mom I'm the same as you vote.
0: I love that, that's cool.
2: <laughs> right, it's in relation to the land, right? Like, yeah. this lady said that to me about being included in the group that's supposed to represent my culture. Mm. And so like, I was really hurt because I was 16 and like, you know, like you're worried about your zits and like whatever. Right. <laughs> and and this lady, here she is, like, closing the door on, on something that I wanted. And I wasn't really strong enough to be like, no way. Like, I'm going to do it anyway. I was just, like, hurt so bad that I was like, forget it.
1: Did she know that you were um, indigenous at this point? Like, part, did she know yeah. that at all? Oh, she knew. Okay.
2: Yeah. Like, I told her, like, oh, I'm from, like, I'm indigenous from Southern California. Mm. You know? And, um. You know, Living Legends is, a, is an interesting place. Uh, there's a lot of good that they do for sure. You know, like I think that it provides a place for students of color to celebrate themselves. And I think that is so important, but um, I, I wonder how much of it is for ourselves and for our cultures and how safe our cultures are in those spaces, how safe our students are in those spaces, if it really is inclusive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, before I came on this podcast, I talked to a lot of my um, other indigenous uh, college friends. Mm -hmm. And um, within Living Legends, oftentimes, like uh, when they're showcasing native dances, the dancers aren't native.
1: This is true. Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: Which is very problematic in a traditional way. I'm kind of like shaking because we don't really talk about this, but I think that all things in order to get better, they need critique is, is a good thing.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely.
2: So in a traditional way, like uh, Our dances came about into powwow because they came from actual gatherings. So the Ojibwe and the Lakota and the the Cheyenne, they would gather together and then share their dances. So jingle dancing is from Ojibwe, and it's specific to them. And Hmm. um, they have protocol for who learns it and Mm. how they learn it. And from who they learn. Um, mm. Just like in Hawaii or Samoa or Tonga, there's protocol with your halau. You know, um, dance is alive, dance isn't just something to show off, dance is ceremony.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: um, and the same here in Southern California. Like I said earlier, like we have our Naquanish dances, which are our sacred dancing that, um, you know, like how you're taught and your intentions with going about that thing, there's like protocol with all of our indigenous cultures. And um, so oftentimes these dances, like I said, up until 1978 across the United States, these dances were illegal. Um, And how they were held and how they were performed, and even perform is like a bad word. I think not a good, There's, I don't know if there's a really good word for, you know, how they were done um, has historical weight. Mm-hmm. So when these dances are shared in a performance way, um that's kind, kind of, of a thing. Yeah. Like it, does it
0: kind of like make light of them in a way if they're not done with like the right sacredness?
2: Yes, yeah. Um it's and it's it's really hard to see when you know, like um maybe something isn't taught in the right protocol way. Um mm. because uh-huh. According to our beliefs, those dances carry responsibilities, Mm
1: -hmm. um,
2: their roles within our communities, um, and roles that have suffered cultural trauma. So to see someone who doesn't have that responsibility, who doesn't understand the teachings behind those dances, dancing those dances for ticketed sales um, for usually majority um (laughs) uh non-native audiences
0: (laughs) (laughs) love the political correctness
2: yeah well you know like who's going to living legends this is a good question it's going to
0: be people that live in utah that go to byu Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's not going to be it's not going to be a lot of natives for sure
2: right right it's not a gathering situation and and that's not to say that you know non-natives are definitely allowed to see our dances and enjoy them when they're given the right, correct mm-hmm. protocol and mm-hmm. permissions. Right. I even like using the term permissions. I like responsibilities because like when, and you know, and I'm sure those kids like are looking for something, you know, um, doing those dances. But I often tell people like, we all need to return to to our earth listening people you know like uh um john trudell an amazing native american um, leader poet speaker he was on alcatraz during the occupation of alcatraz
1: Hmm.
2: he was the the radio voice of alcatraz um he, he talks about how uh europeans like they were abused for 2000 years they had people who were listening to the earth Um, you know, and those people power and control and Greek ideology and, um, you know, monarchy all turned into this really big mess and they abused their own people. And then they brought that abuse here. So I try to encourage students like find, you know, like if, if you, you know, go back to your people look to your traditions. There's plants and rivers and places that miss you, that need you. And that doesn't mean that you have to never come back. It just means like you're part of this earth, you know, like, and and your people have dances and traditions and, and regalia clothing that, you know, connects you to those things.
0: So. That makes sense. And, you know, I can definitely connect to a lot of what you're saying. I, um, I used to be a member of uh, a choir that would perform at, uh, basically it was like, it was called the Genesis group. Mm -hmm. Um, The Genesis group was, you know, it was a good thing. It was, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was like a group for for black LDS members um, Mm -hmm. to kind of congregate once a month and just kind of enjoy African-American culture uh, within the LDS church. And I was part of the gospel choir that sang there. And for a while it was good, but some things changed. Um, And it kind of became uh, more it felt more like I was inside of a snow globe or like inside of an exhibit where, um, you know, I was up there singing these songs that had deep spiritual importance to me and like where, you know, gospel songs and gospel music was born out of suffering. It was born out of slavery. It was born out of um, spiritual awakening and and closeness to God and all these different things. Um, So to be up there performing those songs for an audience that was just kind of there to be entertained and didn't quite understand the significance of that, uh, that was, that was something that was kind of hard for me after a while. And it made me kind of want to distance myself from that and just kind of like appreciate those things for myself rather than like trying and, and give it to people who didn't necessarily appreciate it. So I I can understand a little bit of what you're coming, where you're coming from, um, when it comes to the, the dances and things that, that were performed. Um, you know so that was that was part of like your experience with I guess with living legends and, and like the, your culture at BYU. One of the original, initial reasons that we had wanted you to come on the podcast is just because um, you had like made some comments in uh, one of our videos on on Instagram uh, where I believe it was Cheryl who was talking about her experience at BYU um, and uh, we talked about American heritage and you mentioned that you had some bodily reactions. Uh, while being in American Heritage class, can you tell us a little bit about just like what it was like to be a student at BYU, what the education was like when you were here in in two thousand four? You know, just kind of tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was it like to be a student at BYU, an Indigenous woman in two
2: thousand four? So, American Heritage itself, um, being an Indigenous woman at BYU, you know. Uh, <sighs> there's so much to talk about, especially for me um, as a white presenting native person um, mm-hmm. and a mixed person. Like, you know, mixed kids, like we're always talking about the, the in between. But um, you're basically experiencing microaggression on the daily basis, like mm-hmm. constantly, you know, it's like
0: like what? Like what were some some things that you experienced?
2: what are you? Like, I got asked that question, like, all the time. Mm, Not, <laughs> yeah, what are you? And, and back then, people didn't even have manners about it. Like, they would just, like, <laughs> be like that. Like, oh, where are your parents from? Oh, they're from here. Like, oh, but like, or like, oh, you're Native. Like, you don't look Native. Or... Um, like, oh, did you just get back from a vacation? You look so tan. Like, how are you so tan? Ugh, you're so tan, and I'm not. Mm. Or like the arm check, or um, the arm check is like when you're non.
0: Oh <laughs> yeah, I used to <laughs> get that.
2: Well, like, look, I'm almost like you. Uh huh. Like, well, yeah,
0: you're not never quite.
2: Gonna, you're never gonna be Jello. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so. It's just, yeah, like all those little microaggressions, like all day, like, oh, you're Native, are you here on scholarship? You're just here because of the scholarship. Mm. Or, um, oh, do you guys even pay taxes? Like, or um, are you guys alcoholics? Like, Shoot. I heard alcohol is like a really big problem for your community. Um, yeah, so all those microaggressions, like throughout my BYU experience, and You know, at that time, there wasn't even the term microaggression like or there was, excuse me, it was coined in the 70s. But my own personal education, I'm a music Mm -hmm. major, so it wasn't like readily on people's tongues, especially at BYU. And
0: it definitely wasn't mainstream at that time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There was barely blogs. I'm an elder millennial. (laughs) (laughs) So, um yeah, and I I used to tell students I used to speak at BYU about Native experience, um, mm-hmm. and I would tell them like it's like having a pinprick every every day, like every day there's a, a little pinprick like it it's really nothing and it only lasts a second, but you know if you if you have a lot of them it hurts, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of like the minute I I set foot at BYU I was like, "Whoa, this culture is completely different." Like I I had culture shock, honestly.
0: I'm sure, uh, yeah.
2: Because California is very diverse and um like Europeans arrived here in the 1790s, so Everyone is a mix of something and um, we don't really like uh, blood quantum itself is a genocidal tool um, invented by Momyam uh, settler colonial people Mm -hmm. to eradicate
0: us. Can Can you you explain what blood quantum is?
2: Yes. Um, So um, when settler colonial or settlers wanted to, quantify us um, they started measuring blood so um, in percentages depending on you know India measurement of Indian blood is Mm -hmm. like how they classified us and that way if you were below a certain percentage they could take your land because it wasn't Indian land anymore it's now private property because you're not an Indian according to us Mm. so um yeah and add the violence against women on top of those things. And it's a very, very violent um, idea. And it still persists in native law and policy. And it, um, mm-hmm. I think even at BYU, like in my dad's generation, I, I would need to look this up, but um, BYU put their own, you um, like requirements of Indian blood in order to qualify for scholarship, I think. Um, so um, California tribes, each there's 568 tribes in the United States plus, And then like federal recognition keeps happening. Like tribes um, will make their relationship um, with the federal government. And so We all have our own cultures and our own languages and religions. And um, I don't even like using the word religion, our own belief systems. And um, we also reserve, we're we're sovereign nations, which means we're independent of um, state power within, you know, modern day U.S. law. And we have our own ways of recognizing kin in our own ways of making our families and um so yeah for us we are a lineal tribe and that's so we have the freedom to love whoever we want and um Yeah, yeah and blood quantum can be very very uh violent for women especially because if you're a certain percentage you're seen as more desirable you could be subject to more violence. Um, yeah, hmm. so, it's okay. the it's really, blood quantum is is a really uh, horrible thing. In, yeah, yeah, and I, and, you know, like our, our communities, there's reverse blood quantum, you know, like
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's, it's horrible the way that we're measured and divided
0: for sure. And that's it's interesting too because, you know, in Native American culture, um, it's so I mean like it's a what do you call it? like it's a tangible thing where like they literally kind of pitch you against yourself and against each other using blood yeah. quantum, um, but it's just interesting to see how like amongst people of color, like those same kinds of things tend to run parallel like through each culture. Like, you know, there's like colorism and there's racism and there's, you know, just like these different tools of white supremacy that just kind of divide us. And it's just, it takes a different form in every culture. Um, And it's just, it's interesting to see for sure. And like, you you know, it's the second time today that you've brought up just like violence being done uh, against indigenous people, um, you know, where there's like the violence of, of being taught that like your, your predicament was because of like your, your ancestors, beliefs or their righteousness or whatever. And then also the idea of blood quantum. Um And then you you talked like I, I want to I really want to get into like your bodily reactions to, to BYU classes, because I feel like that's just something that's I've never heard of that before. So like tell us a little bit about what that was and like how it felt to be in that class in those spaces and hear different things and like feel those microaggressions.
2: Yeah. So let's just like talk about the title of the class is american heritage like
0: right (laughs) but not fully american heritage yeah
2: not fully american heritage not i mean the idea anyway just as an indigenous person that is like a joke it is like on its own um you know, um, Dr. Trask from Hawaii, she says, like, we're not American, we are not American. And most indigenous people would agree that, like, yes, we are American now, because we're subject to this law. But Mm -hmm. deep down, like, we're our nations, we're Pai and we're a nation to nation relationship. Um, So with that background, coming into this JSB auditorium, full of people <laughs> um, who are not like you. Like I'm the only, yeah. I was the only California native that I knew at school. Um, most other native students uh, were Diné, or um, there was a few um, Lakota that I knew of. We can get more into that later, but um, yeah. So American heritage, you're sitting there and at, I think at the, at the time that I was attending American Heritage, the textbook had the temple and the American flag across it, the Salt Lake Temple.
0: Okay. All right.
2: Um, that might have been my imagination. I tried to like Google image today, but we got to fact check that one. But it felt like that.
0: <laughs> okay, if anybody knows about that, I, I want to hear about it. So, That'd listeners, if you know somebody that has a, an American Heritage book from two thousand four, let me know.
2: Yes, vintage. Um, uh, yeah. So, being in that class, you're sitting there and you're hearing these, um, you know, ideas about your native homeland that are completely contrary to um, indigenous history almost, um, not almost, I'm like adding that on, like it's to, to soften it. <laughs> Cause mm. a lot of times, you know, people get really defensive about this, especially if you believe that in manifest destiny, that, um, that God, you know, inspired the colonization of the United States. Mm-hmm it's going to feel personal. Um, but I I I, I need to speak strongly about that. Like, um, yeah. So there's all these ideas about America and they're all very romantic. And, um, I was just 19, I was just a little baby and I would feel like the blood in my body, like rising to from, my core all the way like up my ears and my ears, like they're on fire now, even thinking about this, Mm. like, it's like my body knew that what was being said wasn't completely true. And, but I had like no way to like, understand even my own body at that point. Um, so yeah, I, I would feel like these rushes of embarrassment or like if something was straight up wrong, like, or if they were talking about native people, it was usually in a way that was like shoulder shrug, like, oh, that's so sad, isn't it sad? Yeah, well, anyway, we conquered them. Like there was kind of this attitude um, because of the belief in the Book of Mormon that, well, your people deserved it, you know? shoulder shrug. (laughs) And I was, like, cognitive dissonance with this idea, like, um, and I'm not the only person that felt this way. Every Native that I know, like, who I've talked to recently about American heritage, like, when, when we heard you guys on your podcast talking about it, we were all like, oh my gosh, one of my girlfriends was like, That class gave me stomach aches. Wow. I literally like um, another person, like I asked on my on my stories the other day, like who where did where did you cry at BYU? Like where was your crying spot?
0: Oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> because like I remember being in the hvac there was like this basement bathroom that was all Mm -hmm. pink and um there was this velvet couch there for students who were breastfeeding (laughs) to come in Mm -hmm. and hang out on the couch in the bathroom that Mm -hmm. smelled so weird (laughs) 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 but i guess like nobody went in there so i would go in there to cry um and i remember just like i remember like the feeling of the velvet couch and being like, God, like, why did you forget us? Like, why did you forget us? Like, we never forgot you, you know? Like, I I had such deep spiritual connection to my people and to my home and to our way of prayer, even like, as I was maturing, I was learning more about that. And I was like, how could he forget us? And, and how could we, you know, experience this genocide? And, and you're okay with it? Like, hmm. Yeah. So the cognitive dissonance, I think, is what that reaction was rising in me in American Heritage. And then um, I I said this story in the comments, but, you know, we have those breakout classes with the TA. Mm-hmm. The TA is usually a grad student, so probably not the most experienced Um Not the most, you know, steeped in pedagogy (laughs) to lead these kind of discussions, but our class turned into an affirmative action um, debate. Oh, no. Yeah. And this Euro-American boy stood up. and, And the whole time I was just like sitting there like, what do I do? Like, what do I do? Like, I'm... I'm here like I don't even know what to say right now you know and this guy stands up and he's like I don't know why we let any of them in you know they just drop out anyways and I something like went off like I saw red (laughs) Mm. like I stood up and like one of those experiences where you're almost just reactive because you don't even like know what's happening and I was like um I don't know where you're finding that statistic but that's absolutely a generalization and that is not true and I'm here because my people back me up like I was on scholarship from my tribe which by the way being a kid who goes to college from your tribe is like insane pressure and like uh responsibility and expectation of like for your homeland and your group and your family (laughs) and here this guy was like speaking to me as if like i had none of that behind me and so i had to stand up and i said that and then like i don't know what the rest i said but I walked out of class and like, I started crying. And then two girls who are Polynesian, my classmates, they, they were behind me and they came up to me and they were like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you said something. I didn't know what to say. I'm the first person out of my family to come here from college, like to college. And like, you know, we were all kind of like sharing in that familial expectation that we all have like, how could he say something like that? And what about these girls who drop out because they're getting their MRS? Like, this is not even based in any kind of truth. And so, like, that was kind of, like, one of those moments. And I feel like those moments happened all the time. But, like, sometimes you're just so exhausted as a Native student that you just, it's like, when do you speak up and when do you not? And, you know, like, I'm sure you guys can relate.
0: Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. At some point, it just like at some point it gets to where you just don't even have the energy, like you just start to let things slide or you just kind of retreat into yourself. Um, I don't know if I necessarily had a a cry spot, but I definitely had a spot on campus where I would go to just not be around anybody. I was like, if I have to be here, if I have to do schoolwork, I'm going to be in this quiet place. And for me, it was on the fifth floor of the Wilkinson Student Center. There was like this back hallway. Where, like, it was just like a a hallway by the stairwell, and nobody would ever come back there. So, I would just go up there and be up there for like hours at a time. And that was just where I would go to like do my assignments and stuff because I just didn't want to be around people. I just wanted to get my stuff done, like, get my work done. Um, so yeah, like at some point, it just gets to be overwhelming. And like the feeling of being on campus can be very, it can just feel very hostile. And, um, when they had done the, uh, I don't know, have you ever read the co rep report, Alexis?
1: Mm -mm.
0: So, the co rep report, it was, um, the committee for something basically it was like a committee that studied um, racial equity at BYU and um, they did a whole they took a whole bunch of studies and you know took a lot of data made some statistics and things like that and basically determined uh, what needed to be adjusted at BYU to make it a better place a safer space for people of color um, and for just um, people from different walks of life um, but one of the one of the data points that they came up with, was the graduation rates based on uh, ethnicity at BYU. Um, and it's one that I always point to because the graduation rate for white students was, I believe, about 79%. And then for Latino students and Asian students, it was a little bit below that. And then at the bottom of the totem pole, or the bottom of the graduation rate chart, was um, African-Americans and Native Americans. African-Americans have a 58% graduation rate, which means that like a little more than one out of every two students that black students that go to BYU don't graduate from BYU. And then Native Americans had a graduation rate of about 41%. Um, and, you know, like hearing some of your 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 experiences at BYU and like some of those experiences that your, your friends had um, that were also indigenous, um, it just kind of makes me realize like how hostile of a place it can be for people who don't fit that that ideal mold that BYU has, right, and so it can be a very difficult place to to stick it out for four years or five years or six years or whatever it is, um, because it it weighs on you in a different way when you when you have a different identity than than what is the norm. So if you are a part of the LGBT uh, LGBTQIA plus group, or if you're a part of, of the African American group, or the you know, Black American group, or or what have it like you know, Indigenous groups, like these these different parts of your identity really pull at you when you're at BYU and mm-hmm. it can it can just feel very hostile and very unwelcoming in those situations. So yeah hearing you explain that is, is really interesting and it kind of like meshes up with with the results in that co rep report. So yeah. thank you so much for sharing but yeah. we um mm-hmm. yeah, was there anything else that you like wanted to talk about or wanted to share i don't know we haven't even really gotten to your art yet or like the things that you do so if you want to talk about some of the art that you do um and just some of the things that make you happy and then we'll close it out with that
2: yeah i i guess i kind of want to mention that um jazz i think saved me at bYU
0: love that i love uh, me some jazz
2: yes uh to me like you know b y u you ha- have to fit this mold and and i think a lot of us felt that pressure and like like just naturally couldn't ever we'll never fit it and um yeah so i found jazz cuz i could not for the life of me do classical singing like it just was not in me at all i tried I didn't like it. Um, I felt like I was like trying to be somebody else's art. And um, the jazz major was the only other major that wasn't classical at the time Hmm. or wasn't production. So I was like, I'm going to try this. And also it felt like, you know, jazz is the people's music. Um, Jazz is born out of. Latin, Afro beats. It's um, it's born from you know those blue notes. It's born from oppression, Um, Mm -hmm. and it's it's the release of those those emotions, and um, so it it was just very very, you know, and and I had the freedom to to express when I was singing jazz. So I feel so lucky that that became a bridge to me, finding my way back home to myself and my own people's songs and my own people's cultures. Um, yeah, but that perfectionism at BYU, like when I graduated, I was really um, kind of broken in a way as an artist, even though I had learned a lot of beautiful things and I had met so many beautiful people, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's some incredible people around. Um, However, subjecting myself to this perfectionism, I was really burnt out musically. So I started doing photography because I could be bad at it. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) yeah. It's fun to be bad at stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I started shooting film and I love film because it's the same thing. There's grit, there's dust. It's not perfect. You know, um, it felt like jazz, it felt like realness, it felt like authenticity. And I love those things. And um, just the process of film is so physical too, and it slows you down. Um, and that's something in life that I think is, has been a big lesson to me, especially as an indigenous person that like, we're going too fast. Like we need to slow down. We need to put our feet in the sand. We need to put ourselves in the ocean. We need to, um, pay attention to the seasons and how they're affecting us. Learn how to listen to our bodies. (laughs) When Absolutely. we're sitting in American heritage class
1: <laughs> yeah. and be
2: able to know that that's just, you know, a physiological reaction is happening in your body for a reason. Um, yeah. So I started shooting or making photographs of my homeland and my people because I wanted our stories to be told by us, not, you know, um, our stories our stories have been told by uh, settlers by Yom, since Columbus's captain's log you know he their their manners are decorous uh, something about praiseworthy and then and then he goes on to write very violent things mm.
1: <laughs>
2: about us and this cartoon like this you know um, uh, stereotype uh is really all people know of us. So I wanted to change that. And I, that's why I got into photo. Um, A lot of elders at that time, like there still wasn't social media and there was kind of the sentiment in Indian country, like, well, if you're taking a photo, you know, they used to say, then somebody's taking your spirit. And at first, like, I thought that concept was like really interesting and so I approached photo and photogra- photographs of my people, like, with a lot of respect. Like, I asked permission and I, like, m- tried to make sure that, you know, there was consent. Um, and um, that kind of moved into my photography of our plants. And so mainly the stuff that I that I print and sell is um, photography of our, our homeland and our plants and I kind of like started approaching photography in the way that I would approach a person, um, photography with a plant. So white sage, for example, um, like I would approach the plant and offer good words or a song or tobacco and um, ask that plant, like, what do you want to say? And just like take a moment to pause and listen and be present to what was around me, um, the wind, the fog, the the sun, and craft my photograph, according to what this plant wanted to say to the world. Um, so Love that. Yeah. yeah, and that's, that's kind of like my, my, uh, I don't know, process, I guess, as an artist and okay so
0: yeah i love that i love that yeah to so to close out just one last question for you it's not like super relevant but because you study jazz studies i just wanted to know who is your favorite like jazz musician
2: i don't know um
0: like what's like what style do you listen to like is it more like classic jazz do you like smooth jazz
2: mm, i love All the women singers, like Billie Holiday, was my first love, Um, and even like if we're going to talk about African American singers, Whitney was my mom. Singing wise, like I, I had my like little '90s headphones in, and I would like run around the Tangerine Groves, like singing (laughs) Queen of (laughs) Queen of the Night, (laughs)
0: like.
2: Like That's the whole cool. bodyguard soundtrack, I knew it when I was like seven years old. Holy cow. Um so like that music, it you know, I think I just felt the authenticity. I felt the heart of of Tina, of Aretha. I mean, you know, all of those are rooted in jazz, all of those are rooted in those traditions. Um mm-hmm. My favorite jazz song though is a duet between Duke Ellington and John Coltrane, who come from Ooh. kind of different um jazz subgenres.
0: Uh-huh. I love both of them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um it's called In a Sentimental Mood.
0: Oh, I know that one.
2: Yeah. I love it's that really one. Ballads. It's yeah. Or maybe yeah. I'm not sure.
0: That's a but good one. I, I'm trying really hard not to start humming the whole thing yeah.
2: right now. <laughs> I would listen to that opening line and just like cry on the second. I cried so much at BYU. Wow. <laughs> I had to let it all out. <laughs>
0: there was, was good smart. times
2: too, and I think holding those both both those things like that's some authenticity right there. You know,
0: absolutely, absolutely. That's the. Truth. Yeah, that's cool. And in a sentimental mood is a beautiful song. Mm. I'll recommend that to people listening. Check that song out: Duke Ellington and John Coltrane in a sentimental mood. One of my favorite jazz songs actually is um, "My Favorite Things," like the long version by John Coltrane. Yes. I love that, love it, love it, love it. But so and then I really like like Ornette Coleman and of course yeah. Miles Miles Davis and um, like some newer stuff. Have you heard of Emmanuel Wilkins? No. He's like a newer jazz artist. Yeah, um, he plays like the, the saxophone guitar. and he's he's smooth. But
2: awesome, anyway. I'll look him up.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't want to nerd out too much. But, the yeah, it's
2: it. BYU podcast though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Rachel had to drop out. Unfortunately, she was having some tech issues in her computer. Um,
1: oh man, Rachel. Yeah.
0: But uh, she sends her love. But yeah, um, you know, we want to do our recommendations, of course. Uh, so yeah. we've already recommended some jazz music. But uh, I'll I'll go first. Um, my recommendation for this week. Is to go and see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. It's funny because you had brought that up earlier, Um, but I went and saw that a couple weeks ago with some friends, and it is—let me switch this. It is a a really, really fun movie. The animation is so unique, so interesting, um, and it's just like a a style that I'd never seen before in an animated movie. So I really enjoyed that. And then the storyline is also a lot of fun, and it was just great nostalgia because I watched the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles TV show growing up and loved it. So that's my recommendation for this week. Go and see that movie. Alexis, what you got?
2: Um, I would like I love that, by the way. I am a 90s kid, so I grew up on all that.
1: There you go. Um,
2: I would like to recommend On Zion's Mount by Jared Farmer. Um, it's a book. It's pretty thick. But if you are a resident of Utah, um, it's uh, a good history of what has happened in Utah and you know kind of explains why um, how things happened with the Timpanogus, with the Utes, with the Black Hawk Wars and how um, you know why today the streets are numbered and straight and the land is not mm. <laughs> On the signs, um, yeah. okay. Yes, on Zion's Mount by Jared Farmer. And then um, I would like to also recommend <laughs> listening to Black Belt Eagle Scout. Um, she's a native artist. She's freaking rad. And then I'll go watch Reservation Dogs. It's on.
0: Ooh, I've heard of that one.
2: Yeah. Those are my buddies, the writers. And really? Yeah, pretty much. Indian Country is kind of small. <laughs> so, like.
0: That makes sense.
2: Yeah. We all kind of like. Yeah, no, we don't all know each other like people think, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but kind of close.
2: Yeah, kind of close.
0: I
1: love that.
2: We're fam, okay. we're all relatives,
0: I love all that. of us. <laughs> there you go. Well, well, yeah, that's that's some great recommendations. We'll be sure to include those in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but Alexis, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It was amazing to hear your experience and yeah. uh, just to be able to to talk with you. It was a great time. So thank you so much for that. No and, uh, like, yeah.
2: Lovic. that means my heart my core is good thank you thank you guys for what you guys do for reals like as a an alum a few years back like it's so incredible to see what you guys did and you know what you continue to do so notion oh thank you yeah.
0: thank you and we'll keep we'll keep doing our thing we'll keep working hard to to make change wherever we can yeah. but uh With that, we will catch y'all next week.